I think this is what it is, mate, nail on the head in a nice, succinct manner. I want to be able to tell stories that other people can't. And welcome to this episode of Tripology. I'm Alan, and I'm here with the other inescapable Adam. You are. You're right here with me. How does it feel to still be in the gaff, in the flesh? In the gaff, in the flesh. It's nice. It's nice to be here. <laughs> that doesn't sound like something I'd say, does it? <laughs> what do you mean? In the gaff, in the flesh. It was an unusual <laughs> comment, wasn't it? It sounds a bit brutal. It sounds a little bit strong for me, but I'm really pleased you're here, mate. It's been such fun since you arrived, and uh, long may it continue until you fly home. I'm enjoying it here. I'm really liking being in your presence. I think it's a lovely thing. It's beautiful. How are you doing? I'm all right because usually I've got to negotiate a different time zone. I've got to navigate the fact that I wake up at seven o'clock in the morning. It's already mid-afternoon for you. I want to find out about your day, get an episode down. But now we're, you know, we're completely aligned. It's amazing. Yeah, there's no time difference to battle against. Constantly treading water against the stream with the time difference, aren't we now? Now, all of the other relationships in my life are suffering yeah. the way that I was used to. <laughs> I'm glad I've been bumped up a notch. Yeah. It's it's just, uh, if you're ever thinking about starting a podcast, I would say a good thing to do for sustainability is maybe choose someone who's often on the same continent as you. Yeah, but if you want an interesting podcast that covers the concept of travel and moving around the world, then time zones are going to be an inevitable aspect of it. They are. The only way that we could possibly deal with this issue is if we travel together. Well, maybe it'll be on the cards in the near future. Who knows? But, you know, we can't see into the future. We can't, we can't. But today, we're going to talk about somewhere maybe we wouldn't travel, something about a place that we wouldn't necessarily want. Alan, I want to talk to you about touristic places. Yeah, that's an interesting topic, isn't it? We talk about those sort of places where you have an idea of them in your head, you sort of hold them up on a pedestal maybe mm -hmm. as being somewhere that you absolutely have to go in a place. Talk about the times those meet expectations, the times those don't meet expectations, expectations versus reality when it comes to some of those massive beacons of travel. Yeah, I think that they've been completely distorted, some of those places. We're quite rightly drawn to certain places that are popular because they are amazing. They're really interesting places, whether they're a place of natural beauty or an incredible temple, a historic site, whatever it might be, there's genuine reasons why they've become very popular within the travel space. But then sometimes you get there and it just falls a little bit flat. Yeah, absolutely. I've been really lucky to have been able to visit like a lot of the seven wonders of the world, both natural and ancient, whilst I've been traveling. I've been lucky enough to have these ideas of places in my head before I went traveling, then come into my life and be actualized. There's a lot of mm. little things that while I was sat at home, a little lad in Stockport thinking about my future, thinking about traveling, I thought, God, I'd love to see that thing. I found myself there a lot of times. Sometimes they've met expectation, exceeded expectation. Sometimes I've been there, I've looked all around and think, goodness me, there are a lot of people here and that's the main feature of this place. Yeah, nowadays, of course, it's usually involving phones, cameras, 
completely distorts or taints the experience. And I don't know whether that says more about us than it than it does them. You know, for some reason, it feels like the one reason people go to a place is just to take a photo of it. Yeah, certainly. The, the biggest culprit of this whole thing for me, can you guess what it is? Is it? Is it quite specific? Or yeah, is it- there's one location that for me, I couldn't wait to see it. I'd been dreaming of going there my whole trip and it was the pinnacle of exactly what you just talked about. Okay. Is it the Pyramids of Giza? No, it's Machu Picchu. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Machu Picchu. Because look, I've seen a fair few pictures of yeah. Machu Picchu online. Mm-hmm. Very rarely do you see more than like, one person in the shot. It might be two people in the shot. It's always the same spot, isn't it? It's a really well-trodden piece of ground where Mm. that fucking photo is taken from. Yeah, I mean, that photo is a lie because (laughs) let me tell you, I thought I held Machu Picchu on such a pedestal. It was the last kind of big, big wonder that I saw on this four-year excursion. I'd Mm -hmm. seen a bunch of them. And I couldn't wait to see it. And I'd gone on the Salkantai Trail, which some people will know is a slightly less popular version of the Inca Trail when people do these long hiking excursions up to Machu Picchu. Less popular? Why? Less popular because it's cheaper. It's a little bit harder. The elevation's a bit more difficult. It also takes you through slightly less scenic route of jungle and stuff like that. Right, okay. But, you know, it's significantly more affordable. So I was hiking for like four or five days up to... Machu Picchu right. with a cool group of people. That was an awesome trip. The people were really cool. The guide was cool. We were hiking, we were talking, we were laughing, we were staying in tents. It was awesome. Got to Machu Picchu, which felt like this intense struggle. It's quite a difficult hike. Bonded with the people I'm with. You get to this scene and it's just a flood of people who have got the bus. Oh no, you're joking. Yeah. So they it, should regulate that shit. It's difficult, isn't it? Yeah, you want to see it, you fucking walk. Mate, I mean, the amount of people there who had taken a train into the area and then a bus up the stairs, essentially. Yeah. It's so far outweighs the number of people who have done a walk. And then well, hang on, the the infrastructure in order to get that bus as high as it needs to go to then reduce the time that you need to walk down to something that's walkable for tourists. Yeah. I mean, they've they ploughed through areas of the jungle now. Is it completely ruined huge areas of the forest? What's happened? I mean, the deforestation of that part of uh, Peru in order to expose Machu Picchu is something of controversy. There is there's a lot of deforestation going on in that area. Bound to but happen. the... Yeah, man. It's like, obviously, Machu Picchu has become a really lucrative thing, right? A lot of people like me really want to see it. And therefore, opportunities rife. I mean, why not just cart busload and busload of people to go and see it? Mm. I was so excited. I went down. You can actually go down into the ruins and meander about. I walked past someone who was like taking a picture and they were so aggressive. They just got the bus that morning. They're like, excuse me. Like they proper jostled me out of the way. They were really like, I'm taking a picture here. You wait while I take this picture. And it was just became this cacophonous 
everyone jostling for space to take a photo of themselves next yeah, to Machu yeah, Picchu. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this isn't what I expected at all from this. Completely the wrong energy when you're standing in something that's so awe-inspiring and has got historical significance, an area of extreme beauty, where you yourself have trekked for four or five, day, four or five days to get there. I do think that from the other side of the argument is that you can understand why the Peruvian government have allowed this to happen. Huge increase in income into the economy. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a big shame. But the fact that there are other people that place so much importance on a photograph and get aggressive with you as a result. I mean, how did the story transpire? I mean, kind of just that. I sort of said, like, listen, like, we all want to see Machu Picchu, but maybe have some tolerance for other people trying to move through without taking a picture every five seconds. There was a lot of people there who experienced Machu Picchu solely through the lens of their camera. I swear to goodness, they didn't look upon it with their irises for even a moment. But you mentioned there increasing the revenue for the Peruvian officials and all that, but also so many people are just coming to Peru solely to see Machu Picchu that they actually have an obligation in some sense to accommodate that influx of tourism, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a valid point. It is a difficult issue, and I feel like that's a valid point. I wonder whether the conversation is also kind of around, would these people who are uh, behaving as tourists, let's say in inverted commas, would they have chosen your option if they knew it existed? Because I, I have this strange optimism that lots more people would travel similarly to how we do or how we try to encourage people to travel if they knew it was a viable option. Yeah, you'd like to hope so, wouldn't you? Mm. That is the distinction between the people listening to this podcast and you and I as travellers and people who identify, self-identify in that way and people who are just, they've got a very finite time, perhaps they've taken a week off work and they have to really consume as much of a country as they can, they feel like, in a short space of time. If you've come to Peru for five days and your sole aim is like, I want to see Machu Picchu, I want to, you know, go to Cusco and travel eat around. Eat ceviche. Yeah, eat some ceviche, be in Lima for a little bit. Like your itinerary is, I mean, you're going to be jet lagged, you're going to be all this sort of stuff. You can't really experience anything, but at least you'll have the pictures at the end of the five days. Yeah. So it's a, just a completely different mindset and the two don't really go hand in hand that well. I mean, I don't, the intent of this episode isn't just to talk about Machu Picchu as if it's some awful place because I really loved and valued doing that Salkantai Trail. Mm. It's just the the end result perhaps wasn't as majestic as it otherwise could have been. There are plenty of examples as well of these touristic beacons that I've actually found to be incredibly pleasant and beautiful. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I really like talking about this kind of thing with you on the podcast, because it is an opportunity to learn. And when people uh, talk about a certain place or they go go to an area where the focal point is just to see Machu Picchu, I mean, maybe that's just it. That's all their trip means to them. And and they're willing to, to do it in as the most efficient way as they possibly can and the most affordable way as they possibly can. I don't know if there's something to learn here, but I suppose that we would always encourage and certainly prefer that four to five day trek because that to me sounds like it was far more enjoyable and almost became what you remember the trip by as opposed to that awful experience atop the uh, viewpoint 
where there's just, you know, however many hundreds or thousands of people trying to get that one specific shot. Yeah, I mean, if there's an argument for the kind of travel that we love to do and like to promote on this podcast, it's that, right? It's just wholesome, full scale, take the extra few weeks and do it properly. You'll end up having a much more fulfilling experience. So the message to the fans is, Still go to Machu Picchu, yeah, but just do a lot of research beforehand and think about how you want to experience it. How do you want to get there? Exactly. And to an extent, it depends on the place, right? Mm -hmm. I'll give another example. Petra in Jordan. Mm -hmm. Petra is a place where you buy a ticket for one or two days. You can experience the entirety of those grounds, the ancient city of Petra. It's amazing. I loved it. There's still a lot of tourists but it's a vast expanse and you move through to see the different aspects of the ancient city of Petra. There's the treasury, the monastery. They're all Mm. like a walk away from each other. And that separation gives people an opportunity to disperse and separate. Yeah. And you can explore the whole thing thoroughly in one visit or two visits. And you can go at night or during the day. It's a very, very different experience that because Machu Picchu is like, you can either see it over five days or one hour. <laughs> but Petra is more linear. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's going to spend a roughly the same amount of time there. And so you get less of the bustling quickly, let me get my picture, everyone else out of my way kind of mentality. Okay. Yeah. And as an experience, I mean, is it possible to put compare the two as a result of that, what you've just explained? I imagine it's not, but... I think that I would value the five-day hike of Machu Picchu greater than the city of Petra in isolation, but the actual experience of Petra in isolation compared to the time at Machu Picchu physically, you know, Petra was much more enjoyable. So I guess it's like, it depends on from what angle you consider each option. Yeah. I wonder if it's possible to take the Petra approach, but to Machu Picchu, you know, that was something that the local tourist uh, board offered whether it was maybe stunt the sort of influx of tourists or whatever, because it was it, is it over tourism there? Would you say it's? Well, the way to do that though, would be to insist that everyone had to hike up to Machu Picchu and not provide the bus route, which is obviously a crazy expense that they've done to like carve a road all the way to Machu Picchu. But yeah. then you're being exclusionary because what about people who physically can't walk? Yeah. Well, I think about that a lot, mate. I really do. When yeah. it comes to one of the reasons why I want to continue traveling for as long as I physically can, mm-hmm. it's because those types of experiences are worth working for. And I'm not saying you should exclude people who are unable to do that. Of course, I'm not. But I'm thinking about my specific experience and what I'm capable of doing now. Yeah. I want to make sure that I'm able to discover or uh, hike or whatever it might be, climb mountains for as long as I possibly can. So, yeah, it's a really sensitive issue for obvious reasons. But when it comes to yeah making it exclusionary, it's tough. Maybe what about permits? What about you know some permits and things? Maybe that you only allow five hundred people up a day or well, something along I, those lines. I think that you should have the the methodology for people who can't physically walk to get up to those places. Yeah, yeah. But just on a conscious level, people who 
are fully capable of getting up there, but choose to get the bus because they can't be bothered. Yeah. I mean, they are ruining it for everyone else, right? <laughs> like they're making it a more unpleasant experience in some sense. So maybe it's just a cognitive decision that people should make. And that's part of ethical and responsible travel. Yeah. It's just like, if you are able to walk through the seek into Petra rather than riding a camel, if you are able to walk up the stairs to Machu Picchu rather than taking a bus, those are probably things that you should do. Yeah. Have you got any idea on the difference in price at all between like the five-day hike? I imagine it was more expensive than the bus ticket. But... Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I couldn't tell you the specifics. I know that the bus is like relatively affordable and the, but so is, I mean, I think I spent $250 for five days, meals included, all that stuff for self time, which I would regard as being a pretty good deal. I mean, it's certainly... You could spend that on four nights in a hostel in other countries or whatever. So it's- yeah, completely. Yeah, we don't want to discourage people from doing that kind of thing, but I'd be very surprised if there are people listening to this podcast who have seen Machu Picchu in in the bus way. Yeah, yeah, you'd think so. And I know a lot of people who went to Machu Picchu and absolutely loved it. So again, not a character assassination on Machu Picchu, not a love letter to Petra. There's lots of other ones, examples like uh, the. Great Pyramids in Giza is another example of this beacon of tourism. It was something that I had in my mind. Oh my God, I absolutely have to get to the Great Pyramids of Giza. I mean, the image that I had in my head of those pyramids versus the reality of them is very different. And Mm. they in some ways surpassed my expectations and in some ways fell short of them. Go on, explain more. How do they they exceed your expectations? I mean, as an object of ancient culture, as an amazing piece of architecture, as an object of fascination and beauty, I think they're incredible. Do they ask more questions than they answer? I think in a lot of ways, yeah. I was lucky enough to go inside the Great Pyramid at Giza. Legally? Yes, didn't yes. it? Yeah, legally. Didn't <laughs> and and I delved a lot into the history there. I was lucky to go in a lot of the surrounding tombs and see a lot of the things there. And I think that they they ask a lot of questions. How did that ancient culture build those amazing things? Mm-hmm. Also, uh, how old are they? We don't exactly know. We know that the the Sphinx's head has been recreated and there's erosion on the paw that suggests it's older than science initially thought from mm-hmm. dating. There's a lot of interesting things going on there. Those are the ways where it exceeded my expectation. I thought it was a beautiful, beautiful place. But there is a pizza hut 100 metres from that Great Pyramid. Yeah, I mean, that removes some of the magic, doesn't it? They say that the best view of the Great Pyramid of Giza is from the top floor of the pizza hut that looks onto it. <laughs> I bet that's an expensive piece of real estate, isn't it? It's, it's crazy though, isn't it? And, and, and the fact is, you know, going around the pyramids, there are a lot of people selling you stuff. There's a lot of trash yeah. all over the floor. It's busy. Yeah, that's, I don't know, it's such a shame. It's bound to happen and you've got to expect, expect this sort of thing with development. But I've seen certain shots from above, whether it's been taken by a helicopter or a drone, and it looks like the pyramids are actually on the edge of a city. Yeah, I mean, it's close by to Cairo, Giza, right? It's like, it's right there. So look, it's one of those things. I wouldn't have gone to Peru or to Egypt or to Jordan and not seen those things. Mm. I think it's often really important, inevitable, inescapable to go to those places. Yeah. And 
when I list through the highlights of my travel, you know, those those places are of course part of them. They're huge like beacons. Yeah. I think you're quite right, and we all are quite right to be drawn to those sort of things. And they might be the reason why you go to a certain place. But it's also really unfortunate that often they might not be the highlight that you thought they were going to be. Yeah, they're just, it's just a conflicting narrative, isn't it? They're not going to be. The experience of going up and discovering Petra for the first time and it being this crazy thing that unfolds before you unexplained is lost forever. Petra has been discovered. Yeah, Those yeah. pyramids have been discovered. It's You never get that. You have to go and find new places to experience that kind of majesty. We, of course, love the idea of finding undiscovered and faraway locations. And I guess our travels can take us there one day. But right now, it's time to blast off into the meditation break. And just as soon as we drifted into the meditation break, so too do we drift back here into the Tropology studio. We were talking about those locations that don't quite meet expectation, but are still important aspects of travel anyway. Do you have any examples of some places that you're really excited to go to that weren't quite what you thought they'd be? Yeah, I do actually. And this one's a bit of a strange one because it's an entire city. It's actually Kyoto in Japan. Okay. So Kyoto is known as being this wonderful sort of historic, beautiful architecture, very sort of cute in certain areas and traditional. And it's uh, known for having, I think, thousands of temples and shrines. Mm -hmm. Lots of people flock there as a result. But of course, in the midst of COVID, there were no tourists there. Mm -hmm. And lots of business businesses as a result, they, they suffered quite heavily. But I follow some YouTubers and some podcasters who live in Japan, and they were all doing lots of content, producing lots of content about walking around the streets of Kyoto and saying how incredible it was to finally experience this city without any tourists. Because it gets to a point, Alan, where it is absolutely unbearable. I mean, you're queuing up for these temples to go and see them. Yeah. And there are thousands and thousands of people being herded like cattle through these temples. I remember I was staying in... Uh, one of the outlying areas of Kyoto. And I had planned on foot, I'd basically planned this walking route around the city to try and hit a few of the temples. And I remember I was speaking to this guy in a hostel the night before, and I said, look, I'm going to hit here, here and here, but I'm getting up at 5.30 in the morning. And this was, this was in February. It was really, really fucking cold. And he said, 5.30? I'm not getting up at that time. Right. And I was like, well, well, are you interested in seeing the, hostel, uh, seeing the, the temples there? He said, yeah, I'm going to see all of those. I was like, well, doesn't it make sense if we go together? He said, oh, I'll just go later in the day. I'll wake up at like nine or whatever. I'm going, but there's going to be thousands of people up by that time. I mean, you read enough articles and they all say, try and beat the, the crowds. He was like, I'm not getting up at that time. I'm like, shit, I'd rather stay, rather stand in a queue for two hours than get up at that time. Wow. I was like, okay. So I went out at that time, got up, as I said, on the dot. It was freezing. It was cold. But there were the three temple temples I did. The first one, I went, there was no one. There was absolutely no one. People started turning up as I was leaving. But I'd already sit, been sitting there for 45 minutes with no one there. And that for me, whether it's the most impressive temple architecturally, it, it's not really that important. It was, it was my experience in it. And I think the reason why it was so special was because I felt like I experienced 
experienced it on my own. Right, yeah. And then the second one, one I went to, yes, it was open. Yes, that there were a few more tourists, but it was still really enjoyable. I didn't have to queue. And then the third one, I'd actually read, <laughs> I'd read the wrong opening times on the internet and it wasn't even open. I had to wait for 45 minutes for <laughs> it to open. And I kind of got chatting to this lady that was just like sweeping up some leaves and stuff in the courtyard. But even that experience was quite nice and intimate and I was alone and there was no one else there because it wasn't open. And then I was the first one through the door. What is it then that you think devalues the experience when people are there surrounding a place? What's the thing that really makes it just not as good? Do you know what it is? This is the first time I'm going to say this on the podcast, and I've realised it a few times, and I think I, it's just cemented it for me. Right. Is that I, I'm, I don't like sharing experiences with other people. And that's not to say that if me and you went away, I would mind that. Right. But if I'm experiencing something for the first time, with a thousand other people, it, it feels like it's less personal for some reason. Is that because it feels like an experience shared amongst many is fundamentally less special? I think so, yeah. It's the same reason at its very core why I went to Russia. I went to Russia and travelled for you know a month or whatever through Siberia in the winter because I'd never met anyone who had done that. Okay, yeah. I, I think this is what it is, mate. Nail on the head in a nice, succinct manner. I want to be able to tell stories that other people can't. That's very interesting. And of course, every story that there is to be told about somewhere like Chichen Itza has been told. Yeah, completely. I don't know if this is my internal search to be different or <laughs> what on earth it is. But yeah, I mean, it's probably a bit of that and also a bit of something else. I think that there is truly something that happens when a lot of people descend upon a place that that means there is beauty in sharing experiences, but it, there's a limit, isn't there? I think even logistically, when we take the example of the temples, it makes no sense to me waking up two hours later and then queuing for two, two of those hours of the day. Yeah. That for me is a waste of time. I'd rather go and eat some ramen. <laughs> Another fundamental example for me was if if I stumbled across in the Mexican jungle, yeah. a Mayan temple like Chichen Itza, that would have been remarkable. But the reality of going there is a load of people recording videos of them clapping and hearing the clap back, you know, because it reflects sound. And it just becomes a stunt yeah. from that perspective. It's just all the specialness is taken away by that surrounding. I think as well, I quite like isolation. I mean, this is a completely different example from the one I've just used. And I might have even mentioned it on the podcast before. Do you remember I mentioned the old whip bird? Oh, yeah. The Australian yeah. whip bird. <laughs> yeah. So where I first heard that was on Fraser Island. And we were hiking through this rainforest area. And we were in a group of, I don't know, it was a small group, maybe 10, 12. And there was a couple at the back of the group. We were trekking in a line behind the guide. And these two girls at the back would not fucking shut up. The guy was telling us, look, be quiet. We're going to try and listen for a few animals. We want to be aware. We want to be receptive. We want to be observant. So the less noise we make, the more chance there is we're going to, we're going to see something. And these guys were just chatting away at the back. And we, a few of us are sort of turning around, very sort of British manner to just huff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Give them the eyes and go, are you, are you, are you still talking? Can you just not? Um, but that kind of thing, it just completely changes the experience. It taints it. I, I really don't like it. And I would much rather, you know, is it worth paying for a smaller group or a private guide 
Perhaps in some cases it is, I don't know. So what can listeners of the podcast do if they're seeking to travel and they want to avoid these experiences that are ultimately deflating because of people? Because I don't recommend that they don't go to some of these great big tourist sites because I think there is true value in those places. I hate it when people go, oh, no, I didn't see that amazing thing. I'd have liked to, but it's too touristy, so I didn't see it. And I'm like, well, you don't know whether it was good or not. You didn't go. Yeah, do you think for your trips as well, if you hadn't have gone to those things but still gone to the country itself and maybe had a slightly different alternative experience, do you think you'd still be looking back on that and going, oh, I probably should have said that? Definitely. <laughs> I didn't go to Tikal in Flores in Guatemala Yeah, because I felt like, oh, I'd seen enough Mayan temples and I wasn't in a great frame of mind to see like a touristy site and pay a load of money and do that. But I still look back and think I probably should have gone to Tikal. <laughs> Big mistake. I should have gone, you know? (laughs) All those things that you don't do because of some fundamental moral hierarchy of like, oh, I'm not feeling like it because of people and all that stuff. Well, ultimately, you're going to look back and think, well, I might have really enjoyed Takao. I might have. So you might have, I should have gone. Yeah, I don't, this is quite funny. This has only just popped up. I can't believe I'm telling this story on the podcast because I thought about it a little while ago and it really made me chuckle. I remember thinking, oh, I wish I had that microphone in front of me. But I was in Cambodia Years ago, and I met this English couple traveling, and they were going in the opposite opposite direction. So I was going into Vietnam from Cambodia. Okay, they were coming yeah. back the other way. But they came up through the south. And have you heard of an area called Don Dare or Thousand Islands? Uh, absolutely. I loved Thousand Islands, by the <laughs> did way. Did you really? Yeah, yeah, I really did. <laughs> this I is even better time. for the story. Though. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I, I thought I was umming and ahhing about doing it. And it's not that I was tight for time, but I was trying to make the route I was taking make sense, logistical yeah. sense. Yeah. And I met this couple... And it was so refreshing because how often do you meet people when you're traveling, when you're backpacking, especially around places like Southeast Asia? And no one wants to say anything other than everything's amazing. Sure. Everything's amazing. Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. And I asked them what they thought of Thousand Islands. And the bloke goes, don't go, it's shit. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. What What does he like about it? I said, wow, that's, that's refreshing. I appreciate your honesty. He said, honestly, don't do it. Don't do it. If... I would just discourage anyone from going. It's really boring. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I didn't go. I took his advice. Yeah. I loved his brutal honesty. Yeah. He said it's basically just a load of mounds, and when the tide goes out, it looks like a thousand islands. Okay. Well, look, this is one of those things. I'm so glad you said this story, because what better of a way to indicate at the end of this episode that you've always got to go for yourself. Yeah. And- screw what anyone else tells you Mm -hmm. because I could tell you not to do something that for me was crap, but for you, it might be a transformative experience. Don debt for me, just lay at a point in my travels where I needed a little bit of a break and it was beautiful. You take a little boat ride from mainland Laos out there. I stayed in a little cabin with some friends and we just had good food and drinks and there's beautiful waterfalls and scenery and stuff like that. It wasn't mind blowing, but I had a great time because of the people there and it was, it was beautiful. People I wouldn't have met if I hadn't have gone to Dundee. Yeah. I made a mistake. Shouldn't have trusted him. Too trusting. I don't think you should have trusted him. I'm not saying <laughs> that you would have thought Dundee was this amazing thing, yeah, but yeah. it would have been there'd have been people there that you might be friends with now that you're not because you didn't go. And that's true of everywhere all the time. Yeah, it changed the course of my trip. I mean, it's not like the reason why I didn't go to Dondet was because I didn't feel like I could incorporate it and then go back up and continue on the same route that I had 
planned. Yeah. Turned out I ended up taking a bus into Vietnam and it was it was a coach that is definitely the longest coach ride I've ever taken. <laughs> we'll mention it on another episode. It might be the worst. It might be the worst. Oh, the buses in Laos are sometimes wild, aren't they? Sleeper bus. Sleeper bus. Were you sleeping next to a, another person on the sleeper bus. I didn't do much sleeping. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it was a, uh, it was amazing. Landslide a lot, but we'll, we'll do another episode on that kind of thing. Sure. But, um, but I do think it's important. Also, in the same breath, let's say that sometimes your, the impact that your words have on other people's trip. Yes. It's an interesting point. You've got to be careful what you say sometimes, mm-hmm. and so should we. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm always in favor of people just making the trip that they want to make, do the thing that you want to do, go to the place that you want to go to. And recommendations are of value, but don't take anyone's word at gospel, not ours, not anyone else's. You're like, you are the trip that you want to have. Yeah, completely. I did love how refreshing that was though. I just, I just he thought, hated it. It's got a bit gangster in it. A bit gangster, a bit shit. It's shit. It's shit. Don't go. <laughs> but you met people and had adventures that you wouldn't have had if you had gone to Donde as well. There's the inverse of that coin. Your whole oh, trip no. was on a different trajectory as a result of that man. I'd love that man to write into the podcast. He can write to us at tropologypodcast at gmail.com or he can send us a DM on Instagram at tropologypodcast. We also have a YouTube channel where you can watch the podcast in high definition. It's youtube.com forward slash at tropologypodcast. Really, isn't it a lovely time to be tropologist, to be alive, to be having the trip, to be experiencing travel, the touristy bits, the off the beaten track bits, all the bits that seem <laughs> like they're an important and valuable part of the trip and the bits that don't seem like they're that important, but still are the hidden gems, Adam. And isn't it a hidden gem for us to be here together at the table in the tropology studio as the sun goes down with the inevitability that tomorrow, a bright morning, will definitely come i call that morning next week where the next episode lays like a bejeweled fabergé egg ready to be cracked open let's head there now will you join me i will and don't forget to sign up to the patreon guys to see all the behind the scenes bits how do they do that they go to patreon.com forward slash tripology podcast and how much do they pay to get access to the exclusive lost and found section behind the episode you can pay as little as one dollar a month guys and if that's not a good deal I'm not Alan, and that's not the ever inescapable Adam. We'll see you next week. We'll Bye. see you there. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.